Well, good morning. Come on now. Let's try that again. Good morning. There we go. Yeah, thank you so much, Elzar, for prayer and for Haley and the worship team leading us in worship. What a great uh, set of worship this morning. Uh, take our hearts, Lord. Take and seal them to your throne above. I love those lines. Um, some of you may be wondering, a uh, prayer request went out uh, on Friday or Saturday. Uh, my dad, he ended up in the hospital because he had appendicitis, and I just want to say thank you so much for your prayers. He had surgery yesterday, and uh, he's in recovery now, so thank you so much for your prayers. And uh, also this weekend, uh, my wife, her grandmother passed away after 95 years of life, loving Jesus, pointing others to Jesus, a, a life well lived. And um, yeah, so we're in the middle of grieving that loss, but celebrating, uh, you know, the everlasting life that she has in the kingdom. And with our brother, Dave Barker, this is the, the anniversary of Irene's passing into glory too. And so uh, I was talking to Dave before the service saying, uh, it's, it's hard on weeks like these when you're preparing the sermon, when our lives, they intersect with the message in such obvious ways that I know God's in it. It's his providence, as Dave was telling me, but I don't necessarily like it because it means living out the words that I'm about to preach to you this morning. And that's hard sometimes, but we trust God is in these things and knowing that he loves us. And it just, it's the rubber hitting the road, isn't it? Speaking of the rubber hitting the road, I remember one time we were driving home from a family get-together. This is years ago. We're in the car, and out of nowhere, my son asks me this question. He says, Daddy, what's the worst way to die? He was four years old. What's the worst way to die? And all of a sudden, like, I'm taken aback by his question. Immediately, I have all these scenarios of gruesome deaths that are running through my mind that in no way am I going to start discussing them with a preschooler. What's the worst way to die? And so I quickly responded to his question with what I think is a pretty good answer, if I do say so myself. I said, son, the worst way to die is without Jesus. He said, I know that, Daddy, but what's the worst way to die? I think at that point, Andrew suggested we listen to some music. So, but that story is so memorable to me, not only because my four-year-old had already started thinking about death, but in the days that followed, it got me thinking about that answer I gave to him, that indeed, the worst way to die is without Jesus. But that is also the very worst way to live without Jesus. I was expecting like an amen at that point. That is the very worst way to live, without Jesus. Yes. You see that while some of us fear death, there are many in our world whose lives are so full of suffering, they seem to lack any sort of purpose that they fear to go on living day after day. But in the passage that we're looking at this morning, the Apostle Paul, he looks at both his life and his potential death, and he demonstrates a stunning attitude, welcoming either, come what may. And he's able to do this because in Jesus, Paul has found both meaning and hope. He knows that either way, whether it's in life or in death, 
Jesus delivers. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you, crack them open to Philippians 1. And we're going to be looking at verses 18 to 26. This is what the word says. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in this body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. But what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. This is the word of the Lord. Now, if you've been following along in our series, you know that I have made a point at reminding us again and again that Paul is writing this letter from a prison cell. Most likely it's in Rome. And last week when we were looking at verses 12 to 18, where Paul informed the Philippians about what was happening to him as a result of his imprisonment, that rather than stifling his ministry of proclaiming the gospel, God had actually used it to advance the work not only giving Paul opportunities that he never imagined he would have, being able to share with the the praetorium, the Roman guards who watched over him, the gospel, but also he was using others, including some who are only preaching the gospel because they think it will actually stir up more trouble for Paul while he's in prison. Yet as a result of all of this, rather than sitting in prison depressed, Paul rejoices because God is growing the gospel through adversity. Now here in the passage we're looking at today, Paul says that he has even more reasons to rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. His deliverance. What deliverance does Paul have in mind? Because I don't think he has the inside track on his release from prison. Now, the word that Paul uses for deliverance here, it gives us a clue. In Greek, it's the word soteria, which is often translated, most often, as salvation or vindication. So it's likely that Paul is speaking about being delivered in theological terms, not his literal acquittal. The second indication of the kind of deliverance that Paul is insinuating here is uncovered when we discover that the words he uses in verse 19, they are the same words found in the book of Job. When Job says, Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance. You see, in his account, Job endures incredible suffering, uh, but his friends and even his wife, they insist that his suffering must be the direct result of his disobedience and sin. But in the final part of that book, 
God shows up, and not only does he vindicate Job, informing his friends that Job's suffering has nothing to do with disobedience, that it is a part of living in a fallen world, but God also relieves Job, delivering him of the terrible suffering that he was going through, and God blesses him. So here, I believe Paul rejoices because like Job, he knows that one day God will also quiet all of the naysayers. That all those rival preachers that he talked about in verse 17 who are trying to stir up trouble for him while he's in prison, they will be rebuked by God and Paul will be vindicated. They too will see that God has stationed him here in this prison for a purpose, for the gospel, not because of any disobedience or sin. And like Job, God will also deliver Paul of his earthly sufferings too. Paul rejoices because he has the utmost confidence in Christ, delivering him from both false accusations and his present difficulties. But as we'll see, he's not quite certain on exactly how or when Jesus will do this, in life or in death. But notice the role that others play in Paul's deliverance. He says he expects God to bring about his vindication through the prayers of the Philippians and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So it's through prayer and the Spirit. Though ultimately it is God who rescues us and he's more than capable of doing it on his own, Paul believes that the prayers of other believers along with the Holy Spirit are the means by which God chooses to do it. This is really important here. This shows us that we cannot think of our Christian lives in isolation from others. Our well-being, including our sanctification and even our salvation, these are not just private matters. We need the prayers of other people. We need the intercession of our brothers and sisters, and they need our prayers too. This is why I'm so thankful that Calvary is such a prayerful community that we spend time, much time, before the service praying for this. As we pray throughout the week, we we offer prayer afterwards. I'm so grateful for the prayer requests and updates that Dave Barker sends out throughout the week and being able to take advantage of them myself and reach out so that my church community is praying for me. James 5 says, The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they've sinned, they'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayers of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So friends, let us continue to pray for one another. God knows we need it. Now in verse 20, Paul seems to be anticipating his upcoming trial when he says, I eagerly expect and hope that in no way to be ashamed but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. So what Paul is hoping for is that when he stands trial, that he will not fail in his testimony of the gospel. That's kind of surprising to me. I never would expect Paul to be someone who would actually like worry about that kind of thing. It's hard to imagine Paul being scared, right? He comes across so confident, so courageous in his letters, but even Paul could have moments of fear in the face of death. In 2 Corinthians 1, he writes there, 
uh, about his anxious moments, saying to the Corinthians, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. See, Paul doesn't want the Philippians or the Corinthians or even us to be under some sort of false impression that he never fears or has some doubts, right? Paul struggles at times in life, just like we all do. He does expect that he will faithfully proclaim the gospel when that moment comes because he desires to honor Christ regardless of the outcome, whether he's free or whether he's executed. But he is under no illusions that he will be able to do all of this if it's based on his own strength, efforts, or skill. Paul's confidence is based in a hope that he will be provided sufficient courage. His confidence is based on a hope that he will be provided the courage. And that hope and courage, they don't come from within. He doesn't muster it up himself. They come from Jesus. It is Christ who delivers. And I find great comfort knowing that. Knowing that faithful outcomes, well, they're not solely contingent on my own strength or abilities. They're not contingent on my skill at communicating the gospel. Like, I get nervous and flustered when it comes to sharing my faith too. But like Paul, I can have hope, right? That in the moment, not only will Christ deliver the courage that I need, but he will also give me the words. Jesus said to his disciples, whenever you're arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at that time. For it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. So you and I, we can have that same sort of eager expectation and confidence when it comes to sharing our faith that Paul had, not because of our abilities, but because of Christ who delivers his spirit to each one of us who believes. Paul then goes on to share his outlook on the potential outcomes of this trial, and it is an amazing attitude that he has. He says, So that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. First thing that I noticed from this was Paul's primary concern. It's not living. It's exalting Christ. That's incredible. The second thing is his outlook on death. Paul sees death as gaining something. That dying and being with Christ isn't just better than living in the here and now. He says, better by far. Better by far. This is so different than how our world views death, right? They only see death as loss, as the ultimate loss. And I think for many of us, if we're honest, we, we struggle at times as well to see how dying and being with Jesus is better by far than the lives that we're living right now. 
And I think that's because we often have an inadequate understanding of what life with Christ looks like. I remember when I was going to Douglas College, uh, I thought I was going to become a teacher, and I was in class, and I had this one classmate who was really interested in the Bible, and especially what did the Bible have to say about life after death, right? So he would bring me these questions about all these images of what life after death looked like, right? And so he would talk with me like, what do these images of like streets of gold mean? Or why is there 24 hours, seven days a week worship? And, you know, it doesn't seem like that that's better than the life that I'm enjoying right now. And I remember thinking in that moment, forgive me, if, please, but I remember saying, yeah, you know, it doesn't sound too terribly enticing. Uh, that doesn't mean I don't love church. I love church, but 24 hours, seven days a week, I'm not, I'm not sure about that. But friends, when the Bible talks about eternity or the kingdom of God, it isn't this picture of us sitting on clouds, playing harps in disembodied spirits that you know, we see in movies or television shows or cream cheese commercials, right? Like, that's not what it's about. You see, the hope of Israel and for Christians in the New Testament, it wasn't heaven, it was resurrection, that one day that we will receive new bodies. And yes, there will be a new heaven, but also a new earth. And it's the beauty of this wonderful world that God created and called good that we are living in right now, but with all, all the brokenness and sin that distorts it. Combine that with God's heavenly home so that there will no longer be any separation between us and our creator. Now, doesn't that sound good? There, we will no longer experience pain. There will be no loss or suffering, but there will be this abundant life walking in the presence of our creator, just as he intended this from the beginning. That's what we have to look forward to. But until God brings his kingdom in full, Jesus says that believers who go, who die, go to be with him now in paradise. In paradise. That's what he said to one of those criminals who was crucified next to him on the cross. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. And in the Jewish tradition, paradise was thought of to be this place of blissful rest where the dead would wait until the day of resurrection. Because that's the ultimate hope. God's kingdom coming in full. Resurrection, new heaven, new earth. Can you now see why Paul views dying as gain? He has this vision of life with Jesus beyond this life that is far superior to what most people have. And we need to capture that same vision, both for ourselves, but also for others. That in death, Christ, he delivers but even though Paul knows that it would be better for him to die and to be with Jesus, he still sees there being a benefit to sticking around. He says, God has fruitful labor for him to do and that it would benefit others like these Philippians if he remained. I don't know about you, but there are often times where my labor doesn't feel fruitful. Often we strive and we work hard, but the results, sometimes they're disappointing, aren't they? They even sometimes feel like they're fruitile. Futile, I said fruitile. Um, and I've often felt this sting of futility in ministry too. But I remember some wise words an older pastor once said to me. 
He said, our job, it's not to be fruitful. Our job is to be faithful. It's God who provides the fruit. He's the one who's responsible to grow it. And then Paul takes this analogy of growing fruit in 1 Corinthians 3. He uses it saying that the Lord has assigned each one to a task, right? He says, hey, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes this grow. Again, our job isn't to be fruitful, it's to be faithful. But Paul, he's got such confidence in Christ because he has seen Christ deliver the fruit time and time and time again. He's seen the fruit Jesus has produced in his own life. He's seen him deliver the fruit while he's been in prison. And he's even seen it in the life of his churches that he ministers to, like the Philippians. That in life, Christ delivers. In the final part of this passage, Paul tells the Philippians he's convinced that he's going to remain, that he'll stick around, not because it benefits him, but for their progress and joy in the faith. That's a really unique way of looking at our life and death, isn't it? That it's not viewing them in light of what's best for us, but how they might best serve others. Because I'm sure we've all had family members or people in our lives who maybe they're elderly and they, they're sick and they have no quality of life and we wonder, they stick around day after day, month after month, year after year, and we're like, Lord, why don't you take them? When I was younger, I remember my grandmother, my Oma, uh, saying to me, and she was already in her late 80s, saying that she was ready to go home to the Lord. That was a little shocking for me as a little kid to be like, oh, she's ready to die. Whoa. But she was quite old, and at that point, she'd been living in a care home for a long time, and she didn't seem to have much quality of life. Yet she continued to live for like at least another decade like that. And we wondered at times, like, why didn't the Lord take her home sooner? Like, obviously, it would have been way better for her. And yet, her life still served others. My dad, he reflects often on how during those waning years, she never complained. She was always grateful and she was content despite her circumstances. She was a model of Christ-like faith to us. See, when Paul says that he'll remain for their sake, he is suggesting that the Lord may not take people to be with him because it serves other people better to have them around. And it may not be apparent to us how God will use them. But like Paul, our lives should be marked by serving others in service of King Jesus. Our lives need to be marked by serving others. Because that's exactly what marked Christ's life, isn't it? He said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' life and death, it served humanity out of his obedience to God, his Father. And through his life, we see how he extended mercy and healing, how he restored marginalized people, how he comforted the brokenhearted. And then through his death, he bought us forgiveness, showed us grace and also a way to be reconciled to God. In life and in death, Christ delivered. 
And so those who trust in him can say with Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But friends, death is only a gain for those whose life is in Christ. Death is only a gain for those whose life is in Christ. In John 3, it says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world, to deliver the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Death is only a gain for those whose life is in Christ, and God desperately wants all of us to find this life in Christ, this good life, this abundant everlasting life that is only found through faith in Jesus. In 2 Peter 3, the apostle says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And that's our hope too, that we would all come to repentance, that we would all put our confidence in Jesus. And like Paul, we would be able to face whatever comes whatever the future holds, life or death, because we know that Jesus delivers. Again, in these final verses here, Paul tells the Philippians, he says, I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ will abound on account of me. Paul says that the main purpose for him being with them is their progress and their joy in the faith. That's his main purpose, for their progress and joy in the faith. This should challenge how each one of us sees our responsibility to one another here in this place. That one of our main purposes and priorities as Christ followers is for others' progress, for their joy in the faith. And if this is the case, then perhaps we need to ask ourselves, some questions before we, you know, take a certain action or send a certain email or make that comment. Like, is what we're doing for us or does it serve them? Does this help others to progress? Does this bring joy to their faith? Because if not, then maybe we need to stop and think again. Maybe we need to, to pray about it or turn from it. Literally, repent. Remember, Jesus said he did not come into the world to be served, but to serve. And after he washed his disciples' feet, he said, I've set an example for you that you should do as I have done. So who are we serving? Are our lives marked by serving others in obedience to Christ? Finally, Paul desires that his being with them would cause them to boast in Christ Jesus on account of him. Now this could maybe sound a little arrogant, but it's not. Uh, he is hoping that they'll be able to boast in Christ first because Jesus answered their prayers that he was released from prison. So if he's with them, it means he's set free. So they can boast in Christ that their prayer was answered. But also that they'll boast in Christ because through delivering Paul to them, well, their faith is progressing because of his support. That their joy is growing because of his encouragement. And shouldn't that be each one of our desires, that our company causes boasting in Jesus? Like, I thank God for the youth staff here at this church. 
because of them, you know, my eldest son, he is growing in his faith. I give thanks to God for those who are in church, church in children's ministry here at our church who make my youngest son glad to come to church. He's got joy coming to church. And I sure hope that God is using me like that for your progress, for your joy in the faith, because our goal should be that others thank God that we're a part of this community. Not the alternative. Not because they're not thanking God that we're a part of this community because we're so great or we're so special, but because he's using us to bless and encourage them in their faith. Isn't that the goal? That God is using us to bless and encourage others. So let's have that as our goal as we go into this week, as we go into this day. How are we blessing others, encouraging them, so that they are progressing in their faith, so that their faith is a joy.